Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. These German pictures, destined for certain neutral countries, were intended to spread Nazi propaganda. But Dr. Goebbels tripped up badly, very badly. Just a few months after their meetings with Ivy Ledbetter Lee, the Third Reich's propaganda machine kicked into high gear. Within a year, they were at war and using the techniques they'd learned from Lee and others to cover up atrocities and to sell the German public, not only on the war effort, but also on the existence and superiority of the Aryan race. In the final months of World War II, that propaganda took a very Ivy Lee-style turn into completely made-up news stories about German wins in battles that had never even happened. In those months, a young Jewish-American reporter was charged with analyzing and combating those claims. That man's name was Daniel Edelman. Here he is remembering those days. Doing the psychological warfare thing was fascinating because we were offsetting the claims made by the Germans. It's all lies. I mean, and we had to disclaim them. Edelman would ultimately spend four years working in psychological warfare. He became an expert on propaganda and how to combat it, and he put that expertise to work for American industries, from beauty products and Sara Lee to cigarettes and big oil. He added several new tactics to big oil's propaganda machine, including a unique blend of lobbying and media relations that he called marketing public relations and a fun new thing called astroturfing that involves creating fake grassroots groups. That's the story we're going to dig into today. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled, Season 3, The Mad Men of Climate Denial. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Daniel Edelman was born in 1920 in Brooklyn. He was a diligent student and something of a boy genius, so by 16, he was already at university. He ultimately went to Columbia Journalism School and spent the first year or so of his professional life as a journalist, mostly covering sports and human interest stories. For the girl who loves a soldier is 
the girl who adores a parade. When the U.S. joined World War II, Edelman wanted to enlist, but his poor eyesight got in the way. But within a year, so many infantrymen had died. The military didn't really care much about things like eyesight. It needed bodies. Edelman was drafted, but his vision still kept him off the front lines, and his background in journalism made him a perfect fit for counterintelligence. He was sent for training and then on to join the 5th Mobile Radio Broadcasting Company in London. This is your American Expeditionary Station in the field with the 5th Army. After learning for a while in London, Edelman was tapped by a former Columbia classmate to join him in France, helping to prepare a nightly analysis of German propaganda. Edelman was soon in charge of the entire operation. He said, it's a good job. You work in a truck and psychological warfare. And I said, fine. When the fighting ended, Edelman was transferred to Berlin to help shut down the German propaganda effort and state-owned media. He actually helped to start the popular German magazine Der Spiegel, which he and a few other Americans ran for a few months before turning over to German ownership. For a while, Edelman thought he might stay in Germany and take a job as a reporter there. Eventually, his family dissuaded him and he returned home. And then, like Ivy Lee before him and plenty of journalists since... Edelman struggled with whether he wanted to report the news or make the news, live the modest life of a journalist, or take advantage of the booming post-war economy in America and get into the business side of communications. He figured that his years of psychological warfare would be valuable in the public relations business. So he went for it. He took a job for his brother-in-law's music label. Through that job, he met the folks behind the Tony Hair Company, who eventually hired him to run their PR department, which brought Edelman to Chicago. As the PR guy at Tony, he took the company's ad campaign. Which twin has the Tony? On the road with multiple sets of twins. The campaign featured side-by-side twins, both with perms, and dared customers to guess which had a salon perm and which had the Tony home perm. Which twin has the Tony? You can't tell? Nobody can. Not yet, anyway. But wait. Only Tony gives you this twin guarantee. Media tours had been part of political campaigns forever by this point, but product companies had never really bothered with them. Edelman saw that as a missed opportunity to score hundreds of local press hits and move product in communities across the country. And he was right. In addition to getting coverage in local newspapers, radio, and TV, at one point during the tour, the twins were arrested in Oklahoma for performing salon services without a license. Edelman turned it into a national news story that made Tony a household name. It also paved the way for another new approach to PR, one that included a bit of lobbying on the side. The Oklahoma arrests happened because salon owners were pissed about these home perm kits taking their business. Salon owners in states across the country were mobilizing to push for laws that would ban kits like the Tony kit. So Edelman got busy meeting with state legislators and applying some of those psyops moves that he'd learned, mocking salon owners and their proposals until they were literally laughed out of state building after state building. A couple years later, Edelman started his own firm, calling it Daniel J. Edelman and Associates, with Tony as his first client. But within a few years, he had signed several huge clients, including Mobile Oil, Sara Lee, Heinz, and several tobacco companies and tobacco trade groups. His hunch was proving correct. 
what he'd learned about psychological warfare was extremely valuable to American industry. If that sounds like an exaggeration, you don't have to take my word for it. Edelman's son, Richard, brags about this history in a tribute to his father on the Edelman website. My dad was a real New York City kid, uh, born in Brooklyn, uh, went on to do a Clinton High School, Columbia College, and Columbia Journalism School. He went on to work in uh, Europe uh, for the, in the U.S. Army for four years in psychological warfare. And when he got out, um, somehow the accumulation of all these experiences led him to become the father of marketing PR. Marketing public relations is the term Edelman came up with to describe his 360-degree approach to PR. It wasn't just media relations, it was also legislator relations and truly public relations where you were creating a direct relationship between the company or the industry or the brand and the public. One way to do that was to pretend to be part of the public yourself. I'm a 20-year communications industry professional. Um, I've worked in corporate PR for a long time and on lots of different accounts, including fossil fuel accounts, which I hated. That's Christine Arena. She was an executive vice president at Edelman's firm, by that time just called Edelman. Arena headed up the firm's sustainability division right at the same time that it was representing the American Petroleum Institute. She and a few other executives at the firm made the news when they quit en masse over the company's dealings with fossil fuel clients. She can't share any specific inside information about her time there, so she's speaking here generally about the firm's reputation and about the techniques deployed by the fossil fuel industry. That creation of fake grassroots support, which came to be known as like astroturfing, and Edelman was genius at doing that. Edelman and his firm worked with multiple tobacco and oil clients over the years, all big fans of astroturfing. So fossil fuel industry organizations fund these fake front groups, and they give these fake front groups these names that sound, they're like perfectly innocuous names, like the California Drivers Alliance or the Washington Consumers for Sound Fuel Policy. And these groups, there are hundreds of them, um, are usually secretly run by lobbying organizations, like the two I just mentioned are actually run by the Western States Petroleum Association, which is a top lobbyist for the oil industry. And that group, the Western States Petroleum Association, is in turn funded by members, including BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Occidental, among others. So it's fake activism. It's corporate money posing as activism. And it's designed to undo all of the progress that real activism makes. Working for both tobacco and fossil fuel clients, Edelman also invented litigation PR, basically making his clients' cases in the media. A critical aspect of this was what Arena calls the attack the messenger strategy. They are relentless at the attack the messenger strategy. This has been ongoing for like 30 years. So the most effective attack the messenger strategy to me is like the use of labeling. So for example, if climate scientists refer to facts and data rather than ideology, then they're labeled liberal elites. If climate scientists or activists are alarmed by the data, then they're labeled alarmists. If climate scientists apply for grant dollars to fund their research, then they are accused of being in it for the money. The report is made by scientists that get paid to further the politics of global warming. If there was no climate change, we'd have a lot of scientists looking for work. The reality is that a lot of these scientists are driven by the 
the money. All of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? Arena says that while tobacco used the same strategy, the fossil fuel guys were just better at it. Big tobacco would attack the whistleblowers personally. Big oil, they attacked the whole idea of fossil fuels being any sort of a problem. And because they'd spent decades crafting the narrative that fossil fuel is an essential part of American life, it was easy to call anyone who thought otherwise un-American, effectively politicizing the issue. Of course, we know that big oil learned new tactics from big tobacco too, namely in the form of science denial. And Daniel Edelman was right there, too. In the 1970s, Edelman proposed an aggressive campaign for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. It contained more than a few echoes of his time in the trenches of psychological warfare. Country soft, country fresh. That's the taste you get wherever you light up a Salem, because Salem gently air softens every puff for the smoothest, most refreshing taste of any filter cigarette. The proposal begins by suggesting, for example, that, quote, the non-smoker must be made to feel that the smoker cares about him. It is our sense that the non-smoker is divided into two general groups, those who don't really care if others smoke and those who are growing more hostile to anyone who does smoke. We need to woo the former group to our side and soften the opposition of the latter. Step two is pure science denial. Edelman recommends... We need to pierce the solidly assumed notion that no additional research is necessary on the subject of cigarette smoking. Imaginative and creative ways must be found to correct this impression. Of course, one of those creative ways is to create doubt. And Edelman proposes, quote, We need to counter public impressions based on oversimplification by dramatizing pinpointed areas of study that are mysteries to researchers and scientists on both sides of this issue. That proposal won Edelman a contract, and the firm would go on to work for Big Tobacco for more than a decade. If the science approach they recommended for tobacco sounds an awful lot like the climate science denial that started showing up a few years later, there's a reason for it. Edelman also worked for several fossil fuel clients and the American Petroleum Institute. And that's important because by the 1980s, the API, Ivy Lee's brainchild, was pushing the industry away from researching climate change and toward denying it. Former Exxon scientist Richard Werthemer told us that in season one. The key is the American Petroleum Institute. Exxon had a huge influence, rightly so, in the API. And I think the API changed its tune and probably other majors went along with that. And you can hear exactly the same sort of strategy that Edelman suggested for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company in this speech from then ExxonMobil CEO and American Petroleum Institute President Lee Raymond in 1996. Proponents of the global warming theory say that higher levels of greenhouse gases, especially CO2, are causing world temperatures to rise and that burning fossil fuels is the reason. But scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. You heard that, right? Raymond said the evidence that humans contribute to climate change is, quote, inconclusive. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. But this speech was in 1996, long past the point where Exxon's own scientists had said climate change would cause catastrophic damage for some percentage of the planet in the not-so-distant future if emissions weren't curbed. 
In the late 1990s, Daniel Edelman's son, Richard, took over as CEO, but Dan remained involved for the rest of his life. In various interviews and in Dan Edelman's biography, Richard said he talked to his dad daily about the business. They didn't always agree, of course. When he took the reins, Richard almost immediately decided to drop tobacco clients, for example. The writing was on the wall about tobacco by that point, and what it cost the firm in tobacco billings, it more than made up for in good PR and new clients. The firm did continue to apply the same strategies for big oil for several more years, though, including, as Daniel Edelman's biography puts it, quote, putting a human face on big oil for the American Petroleum Institute. Leading the world in oil and natural gas production. I vote to keep it going with the right policies. We can produce, refine, and supply more oil and natural gas. Edelman picked up where Ivy Lee had left off, continuing to tie the extraction of oil, coal, and gas to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And again, it's hard not to see the roots of Daniel Edelman's World War II work in the approach the firm crafted for big oil. Suddenly, anyone who wasn't pro-oil was anti-American. Daniel Edelman died in 2013, but the firm that bears his name continued to apply the same tactics that he'd been using effectively for decades. In 2014, for example, Greenpeace leaked several documents that showed an aggressive campaign Edelman had come up with for TransCanada to push the Keystone Pipeline. It included all the same tactics we've talked about here. Aggressive opposition research, fake grassroots groups, attacking the messenger, and a big nationalistic messaging push. In 2015, the firm announced that it would no longer be working with coal companies or any company that denied climate science. By that point, they'd already lost not only executives, but also clients, and the reputational risk was just too great. However, around the same time, Edelman also spun off its internal advertising group, Blue, which continued to work for the API. They were responsible for that energy voter ad you might have seen in 2016. More secure America. Jobs. Opportunity and economic growth. For our children. And grandchildren. That's why this election, I'm voting. For American energy. Learn more. For all the rah-rah America stuff the oil industry pushes, these campaigns often work to subvert democracy. In his most recent research, environmental sociologist Bob Brule found that the biggest indicator of fossil fuel PR spend was the likelihood of any sort of climate legislation passing. When you look at their public relations spending, the more Congress starts to have hearings and write bills dealing with climate change, the more they start spending on public relations the next year. In other words, you start having hearings this year, next year you're gonna have a public relations onslaught from the oil companies telling you how good they are, how they're so responsible and good corporate citizens and that whatever problem it is that you're talking about, they're right on top of it and handling it the hidden messages, so therefore there's no need to regulate us uh, at all. 
And in some cases, they move even faster. As the Washington Post just reported, the American Petroleum Institute just dropped a $1 million targeted ad buy the day after a couple of current Democratic candidates said they might ban fracking. And in 2008, when Democrats controlled all branches of the government headed into the big global climate negotiations in Copenhagen, they were spending preemptively. The API alone spent a whopping $75 million with Edelman. I don't think there's any other way to call it other than propaganda, which is a one-sided message designed to create a certain impression. That's exactly what it was. And it's focused, targeted, extremely well done, and apparently pretty effective. So we went from Ivy Lee working with Standard Oil to World War I propaganda to Lee advising Hitler and Goebbels to Daniel Edelman learning the tools of the trade by studying and countering the Third Reich's propaganda in World War II and bringing those tactics right back to big oil. Next time, we'll meet another key architect of the propaganda apparatus, Herb Schmertz, the PR legend who took on mobile oil after Edelman. And guess what? Schmertz also started out in military intelligence. He wound up adding so many new bells and whistles to the propaganda machine that we're gonna spend two episodes delving into his story. See you then. Drilled is part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Julia Ritchie is our editor. Our managing producer is Katie Ross. She also created this season's incredible artwork. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by B. Beeman. Rika Murthy is our editorial advisor. Naomi Lachance is our fact checker. Special thanks to Richard Wiles and to our First Amendment attorney, James Wheaton, and the First Amendment Project. Drilled is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We appreciate their support. You can find Drilled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a rating or review. It really helps the show. And you can follow us on Twitter now at We Are Drilled and visit our new website, drillednews.com, for climate accountability reporting, newsletters, and behind-the-scenes stories from this season. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.